Welcome to the Improv in Practice podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Wilson, bringing you interviews, inspiration, and information on improvised theater with Synergy Theater. You can find Synergy Theater's classes, workshops, performances, and more at synergytheater.com. That's S-Y-N-E-R-G-Y theater.com. Okay, lights down, curtain up. All right, Eileen Tumplin, <laughs> welcome back to Improv in Practice, the podcast. We've missed you. Oh, I'm glad to be back. Thanks, you. Valerie and I are very happy to get the chance to talk with you today. And Valerie has some really good questions for you. So Valerie, where would you like to start? I'll start at the beginning and maybe Eileen, you've discussed this before, but it's something I don't know. Eileen, what was your first stage show with Synergy and how did you mentally prepare for it? (laughs) The first show I did was the Noir show. And I was petrified. I was, (laughs) and in fact, I remember very vividly waiting for us to come out. There's a little space with curtains where where we wait to come out. And I remember looking at the other people in the room with, in that little space with me thinking like, oh my God, what are we doing? Like, (laughs) we're all going to go out there and and do this crazy thing. And we don't know what's going to happen. And I can't believe I'm, this is something that I'm doing. Like, (laughs) I felt sort of surreal. I don't know that I had any, I think your question was, how did I prepare? Is that what you asked me? (laughs) How did you psych yourself up for it? Because that does sound terrifying to me. It was terrifying. I think that because it's so much fun and because the people that I'm playing with are so lovely and supportive that I felt like at some place inside of me, that no matter what happens, that we truly do have each other's backs and we can trust that if you're out there, that no matter what, we're going to look after each other. I remember my first, very first performance, I literally opened my mouth at one point and nothing came out. <laughs> and, <laughs> and in the scene, Ken made something out of it. And it was like, okay, it, it didn't, I'm, it just, we just moved past it. And it all has to do with really feeling supported and feeling like we really do have each other's backs. Wow. That's so great. I reread your, your biography, I guess, on Synergy's website and said that you're an architect. Right. And I work with architects. I'm in construction and we deal with architects and engineers and they're typically introverted people. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Just because for designing projects, there's inward thinking. So being introverted, I'm just wondering, you probably explained this a little bit how the group supports you, but Mm -hmm. you you do have to come out of your shell, right? And become a bit of an extrovert when you're performing. (laughs) Well, that's an interesting question because I do, I I think I identify with being an introvert in the sense that I really enjoy and get a lot of nourishment out of spending time by myself so I can be creative, I can be productive, I can I get kind of replenished. I definitely I used to feel very identified with the with being shy, but then I don't know, something happens when I'm playing and maybe it's because I'm playing another character and I don't have to be me and it gives me the freedom to step out of this self imposed idea that I'm shy and allows me to come out of that. So I think, well, I do get a lot of 
nourishment out of being by myself, I still, I enjoy coming out of that. One of the benefits of just doing improv is that freedom that it allows a person to just step outside of themselves. At least for me, that's how it's beneficial. There's a lot of really beautiful creative stuff that happens when I'm playing with other people. And that is, for me, it's like another way of expressing creativity, doing improv. So there's an enjoyment of just being creative and artistic and creating art together is how I kind of see it. So it's not just about doing something funny, but actually building something together with other people that is a piece of art. That's how I think of it. (laughs) Wow. I love the insight. That's (laughs) so cool. And actually, Sarah, I'm going to direct it to you now because you take improv, but you also seem a bit introverted to me as well. Uh, Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm a fellow introvert, so (laughs) I, I can't even imagine doing improv or being on a stage or anything like that. It's bad enough that I have to be on every show and record, which I love. But when people (laughs) gather around me, that kind of, ah. (laughs) So how do you, I'm just curious, Sarah, if you don't mind answering also, how do you deal with this? Okay. I love this question. I used to think that my introversion was something odd or something that was not ideal, but now I see it as a strength. And not something that I want to diminish. That being said, introversion can also take over if you let it. My goal is to love that part of myself. And I have learned to love that part of myself. And then use it as a strength and intertwine it with something that balances it. What I have found in improv is a way to balance and use my introversion, which is definitely entwined with my creativity. The two, improv and introversion, seem like they would be at odds, but they're actually wonderful partners. Wow. I'm curious, Sarah, if you have found in your outside of improv life, if the things that you've learned to develop as an improviser have influenced the way that you are in the world? Oh, yes, definitely. (laughs) I am much more comfortable speaking to people in a group setting. I'm much more comfortable in standing up in front of people. And that has really helped me at work. Mm -hmm. Improv has taught me so many things, but these are the things that are coming to my mind now. Mm-hmm. Improv has also strengthened my ability to really be in the moment with someone and, mm. and listen well. And what I have found is when you strengthen those traits, the ability to listen and the ability to be present, people love that. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I love that. I love that. <laughs> that is true. I love hearing this. <laughs> really, this is so this is so good. I feel like I identify with both of you the most. Mm. Um, with everyone at Synergy who's also so good, but like Griffin, he's my son, and I feel like he's a very different personality from me. 
which is funny, right? You'd think mm-hmm. your own child or relative would be more like you. I do remember seeing you, Eileen. The first show I saw you in was Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was that your second show? I think that might have been the third show. And frankly, that was, I went through a period where I was kind of really in my head and having a very difficult time being out there and taking risks. And, but anyway, yes. So when you say that Sherlock show, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was, I think, the third show that I did with Synergy. Oh, really? I don't. I don't feel so good about it myself. That's interesting. Why Why the feelings about that? I thought it was great. Well, I think the show is really good. I thought everybody was fantastic. But I personally went through this period of being, maybe it's like a developmental improv thing in which I was feeling very inhibited on the sidelines and, and having a difficult time having the courage to go out and take, you know, make an offer and do something. And so I was holding myself back and having a lot of internal invasive thoughts like, oh, Eileen, what are you thinking? You're not, you can't do this. What are you, are you crazy? That was coming up for me during that period of time. And it was really inhibiting and, and blocking. But then I feel like I got past that. It still comes up. I think this feeling of it's fear, basically, <laughs> fear of taking a risk of doing something and failing or, or making the wrong offer or not listening, whatever it is. And I'm feeling like I definitely have moved past that. But that was happening for me at that time. That's so fascinating because that was my first introduction to everyone, really. And oh, yeah. I remember you and thinking, wow, she's like the queen. <laughs> You're oh my gosh. <laughs> well, you seem so reserved and stately and composed, <laughs> right? And you were just so serious. And then what a shock to see you in Grimm Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> that was a total turnaround. You just, and yeah. then I think that's when, you know, I went out with you guys, you know, after a show one night and I said, uh-huh. Eileen, I didn't know you had such a wacky side. <laughs> so that, that brings me to the Hitchcock. Uh-huh. So how have you evolved to this Hitchcock show? Oh, well, I, I'm so excited about this show because I think there's so, so much stuff to, to pull from when you think about what makes a film a Hitchcock film. And I think that it's funny, like in the Grimm's show, there was just a, the nature of the whole show was very playful. And so that kind of brings that out. And then in the Hitchcock show, it's a little darker in the sense of it's based on the genre of the psychological thriller or the various suspenseful genres within his films. There's that you don't think of that and you think, oh, those are funny. But Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to it because I think the absurdity of, of the combination of whatever the audience gives us, no matter what they give us, is what we take seriously and we become those characters in that world that we're creating and we take it all as if it's the reality that we're in at that moment. And that mixed with absurdity is a recipe for some really wonderful and sometimes really funny things. (laughs) It also can make some very dramatic moments, of course, but this combination of the Hitchcock genre with wonderful audience suggestions that are off the wall, unexpected, will create something that is like it's going to be there's going to be hilarious moments I'm certain and there's going to be very dramatic moments as well and some suspenseful moments so I'm excited about it I think it's going to be great fun oh I do too 
I mean, <laughs> Sarah and I have been, we've been chatting about this for a few weeks now with other Synergy cast members and students. And I don't know if I've ever been this excited about a show before. Really? Wow. Yeah. So t- what are, What is it about the show that, that you're excited about? Well, I have, first off, I just love the genre. It's not a slasher. It's not horror. Right. Suspense. Mm-hmm. And I think it's done fairly intelligently, even though there are some things that Hitchcock did, like pinpointing blonde women and things like oh, that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very stereotypical, maybe for that time. But still, he did a whole different type of directing. Mm-hmm. And I have to just sneak in this as a proud mom. I was at Griffin's filming yesterday at the Academy of Art University. It was his final day of filming. Mm-hmm. And seeing him direct, I'm just thinking about how hard it is to be a director. Yeah. And to push barriers and do new things, which Hitchcock did for his time, giving us the audience's point of view, where he did these extreme close-ups that were super uncomfortable. Yeah. And those long, silent moments that people want to fill the void. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. He had a different composer, just so many different elements, particularly, I think, the psycho, which just scared the heck out of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably always will, but I, I think that's one of the themes or movies that you're going to rely on heavily, I think, Eileen. Yeah, it's definitely an iconic film of Hitchcock's. Most people think of that film when they think of Hitchcock, and it has very memorable, iconic moments within the film. So that is sort of a starting point for what we're the structure of what we're doing, but it's not limited to that type of Hitchcock film. But yeah, it's very important to study that one and understand the essence of that film. One of the things I love about any type of synergy theater show is the suspense. There is suspense in any of the synergy theater shows. (laughs) It doesn't matter the genre. Uh We're in the audience and we're in suspense because we know that we don't know what's going to happen, but we also know that the cast doesn't exactly know what's going to happen. And it's that wonderful place of suspense that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And then, so for this show, to add on to that, we have another layer of suspense that the Synergy Theater players are actually going to try to layer on and will. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested and excited to see how they 10x the existing suspense that is usually <laughs> already there. I have a question about suspense for both of you. Mm-hmm. What is it about being in suspense that people just seem to really like? Eileen, you want to go first? Oh, sure. Well, for example, in Psycho, There's a period or a scene in which Norman is trying to get rid of the car that he has placed the dead body and it's, and you know that there's cash in there and, but he doesn't know it. And then you're watching the car go down and then it, it kind of gets stuck for a moment. That's a very suspenseful Hitchcockian moment. And in that moment for me, it's, I felt like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of rooting for this bad guy in that very (laughs) moment like oh oh no what's gonna happen is the car gonna sink into the water or not because if it doesn't then he's gonna get caught so it's identifying with the character and the issue that's 
in front of them, that you could see them in danger. And then knowing something that they don't know, <laughs> like he doesn't know that there's cash in there and you know that there's cash in, in the trunk. And not that that's such a big deal in the whole big plot of the, the movie, but I think it's about character identification as an audience member and also being aware of something beyond what the character knows. So being emotionally connected to the character, even if they're a bad guy for that moment, and knowing more than the character does and knowing what the outcome could be if something happens. Like there's another really iconic, suspenseful scene, and I think it's Marnie and the main character is trying to steal something from a safe and there's a cleaning lady and it's an entirely silent scene. It goes on for minutes. This cleaning lady comes in and you think, oh my God, she's going to get caught. So again, it's identifying with this character that's doing something wrong in that particular instance. It doesn't have to be a bad character, but not wanting them to get caught. So it does come down to sort of that you have to definitely be engaged with the character that's going through something. You have to care about what, what's going to happen to that character. And then you can see beyond the scope of their knowledge. That's my take on kind of suspense in the genre of the Hitchcock films that, that I've watched so far. Valerie, what do you think? Why do you think people like to be kept in suspense? I was thinking there are people who like merry-go-rounds and people who like roller coasters. <laughs> so if you're a roller coaster person, you know there's going to be a peak to it. There's a climax, mm -hmm. but you don't know what it is unless you've been on it before but something's building up that's the suspense to me it's building towards a climax that's going to what's it going to do mm -hmm. is it going to blow up and, you know kill everyone or or not I like the unpredictability of it which is all improv of course I love when the characters raise the stakes mm -hmm. and I've, I've been to some of your warm-ups and such Eileen and I, I know that Ken will say, well, no, don't, don't do it this way. Do it that way. And I always question, I think about that a lot afterward. Why did he tell them not to do that? To me, it seems like you'd want to build the stakes and sort of twist the story more because I do like the creativity. I do like the, okay, the, the, the twist and not knowing where it might go. I don't know if, if that's too difficult for you guys, if you need a bit of predictability or not. I can think of moments where we might get stopped in a rehearsal because the offer that we're making as an improviser is not building or raising the stakes of the characters or the objective in the story that we're creating. And it is sort of one of the distinguishing elements that is what makes this sort of long-form narrative playmaking improvisation different from short or even medium formats of improv, where in the long form structure that we're working with, we're not really trying to limit what we're doing, but we're trying to focus on finding the story, finding the characters, and we are literally finding them as we go. And then once we kind of collectively realize that, then the goal is to collectively build on that and without planning any of it. So sometimes when we're in a rehearsal and he points something out, it's an opportunity to think, okay, yeah, okay. I can see where I missed something that happened earlier, or I'm, I'm taking this off on a tangent that doesn't really keep it on that, like you said, that roller coaster with the focused climax. 
it's like if we are in that roller coaster together and we're trying to create that story and one of us says, oh, look, look over there, there's a there's an elephant. And then we get off the roller coaster and go look at the elephant. Then the roller coaster is sitting there without us or it's moving on without us. <laughs> so it's kind of like finding the structure together and then training ourselves to collectively hone in on that and, and really just try to focus and build that. What was something that during rehearsals that surprised you, Eileen? Normally we will work on, depending on the genre, a structure, a framework that I'm sure you've heard people talk about character one, character two, first significant event, first significant repercussion. These are structural elements of Ken's play-by-play structure for improvising a two-act play. So that that's what we aim for. But then when what came about in this new format that we're doing with Hitchcock is like, oh, when something unpredictable happens, because like in Psycho, this main character that you think is the main character, this woman who's taken this money, well, she gets killed in the first half of the film, which is really unexpected. When we are trying to take on a genre like that, it didn't really fit into that play-by-play structure. So it was kind of exciting and interesting to see, well, how are we going to work around that? Well, how, what are we going to do with that? I won't give away too much about <laughs> the show, but it depends on what happens in that first act, whether or not people are still around in the second act. The creative process of developing a new genre was like, whoa, this is exciting and this is surprisingly interesting <laughs> and a little more complex than I realized at first. So that was kind of what I would say about the most surprising thing that I've experienced in the rehearsals for this show. What was your very first Hitchcock film and what was its lasting impression on you? It's hard to say what was my first film because I watched them as a young person. And I think North by Northwest and the birds are kind of up there in the ones that I saw first. And the thing that I loved about those like North by Northwest, The Birds, To Catch a Thief, they're very colorful because I think he was exploring Technicolor, this new ability to capture beautiful colors. So the, the colors and the cinematography were just gorgeous. And that was one thing that struck me. And in all of those films, there's definitely a very intense kind of romance happening. And as a young person watching those films, it was the colors, the cinematography, the location, or Vertigo as well. Like, oh, there's San Francisco and there's Bodega Bay, these beautiful places. Here's like the car chase in Monte Carlo or whatever that is. Those were the things that I loved about his films. Revisiting them more recently, I see different things. And it's <laughs> an interesting experience watching them again from a different perspective. Do you remember what you first found creepy when you first saw a Hitchcock film and then compared to now? The ones that I saw first, I didn't really come away with this feeling of, oh, that's creepy. Because I don't think Psycho was one that I saw initially. Somehow I was more visually affected by the beauty of the films. Like, oh, look at the, the, the color. It's all about the color. And then these camera sweeps over something where there's no dialogue at all. Was there something that struck you when you first saw a Hitchcock film that you notice now, but is is different? So, oh, yes. Yeah. So you, you say you're noticing new things. I'd like to know more about that. And then in addition, I hear you talking about the use of 
Technicolor. It is wonderful and adds such depth and a hyper reality or a surrealism to his mm -hmm. films. And then he decides to shoot Psycho in black and white. As an architect, Eileen, I would love to hear you speculate on why you think Hitchcock made that decision to shoot Psycho in particular in black and white. Before that, you can speak to what exactly are you noticing now that you maybe didn't notice before about the Hitchcock films? Initially, like I said, they struck me as being very beautiful and romantic, even though they had these suspenseful underlying stories that were happening and exciting. So initially I would have been thinking, oh, how lovely and beautiful. And oh, look, there's a beautiful blonde woman and a handsome man. Now, when I look at them, I see extreme misogyny and sexism. I see a like uncomfortable focus on women as sexual objects. It's so obvious when you watch Vertigo, for example, like this, this is a a female object that he's watching. He's watching her move throughout the city. And then he falls in love with this female object and then discovers that the female object isn't what he thought it was. And then the female object reappears as somebody and he's like, is that you? And it's like this, you never really get to know that female character as a person. And most of these films like Rear Window, there's these main female characters that are very objectified. and romanticized and they're usually paired with a man that's twice their age so there's like when I watch it now I'm like oh my god that's uncomfortable and I think a lot of that is culturally what was acceptable at that time which is really disturbing as well like that women would have been seen that way and to some extent they still are objectified and sexualized but it's striking how objectified women are and to the extent that there's even like what I have decided in some of these films like The Birds or even in Psycho, there's like a disposable female character that's not the object of affection. Usually it's somebody like in Marnie, it's the, the secretary of the boss. She's smart, she's clever. Or in Vertigo, it's the girl that's the fashion designer that really does love Jimmy Stewart. She's smart, she's clever, she has a great apartment. <laughs> but these are the girls that they're not really treated respectfully and they're, they're disposable. Like in The Birds, it's the school teacher that is Suzanne Plachette's character that she gets killed. Like she's disposable. So it's like either a female is a sexual object and unrealistically beautiful and attainable and unrealistically attracted to this older man, or she's a very intelligent, smart, clever, slightly unattractive <laughs> woman who's disposable and not that important in the big scheme of things. That's like one huge thing that pops out. And so which creates an issue like how do you, as an improviser in this show, as a female improviser, how do you work with that? It's not the first time that we've done a genre where women are typically characters that are objectified. How will you address that for any character that you will play? I haven't really figured it out. If I come into a scene and I don't have an offer... If I'm just joining somebody on a scene, if somebody else has an offer that, that is coming before mine, I will accept that offer. So maybe I'm the mother or I'm the assistant or whatever, just as an improviser, accept that offer. Then as a player, like as an individual, I think it's either exaggerating that aspect of a Hitchcock film and sort of playing that up 
like, oh, it's the mother who has an unhealthy connection with her child. Or sometimes what happens in a show without planning is that we break that mold and let things within the format challenge that. So sometimes that will happen just naturally. A female character in one of our shows might challenge her objectification, but in a way that fits within the storyline, not without being planned. It's an improvised performance. So I don't have any plan except to imagine myself as that woman circa whatever, 1958, being that person and living that life and having those feelings and just being that character. Well, this is yet another reason why I just can't wait. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now I hit you with a lot of questions there, actually. So the other question, though, I would like to hear your thoughts on is why do you think that Hitchcock chose to do Psycho in black and white? That's a really interesting question. It's something I hadn't, I mean, I haven't really put much thought into that. My first thought is that he made that film at a time when he could have made it in color, obviously. There's no romance in that film that is like films like To Catch a Thief or even The Birds. There's actually a female in the beginning who's doing something illegal and she's having an affair with a married man, right? So she's already kind of doing something culturally inappropriate at that time and illegal. And so filming it in black and white, it's all almost like saying to the audience member, like, you are not allowed to see this female character as a romantic lead. <laughs> in fact, we're, filming it in black and white makes it feel gloomy, sort of hopeless, desolate. And in, in the scene in the shower, it's almost like that blood is almost black, you know? It's an interesting way to push contrast, in a, like visual contrast. So I think it might have to do with wanting to make a film that's more, it's darker. It's a statement on ethics of what this person has done, this female character, because she's being punished in the film. Her character is punished by getting killed. And it's a statement on the darkness of bad choices at the time that this film was made. And then, that's interesting. Good question. I Because then how does that make sense beyond that? Like the, the character, the Bates character and his mother. I think you're absolutely right in that Hitchcock was using color saturation in Mm -hmm. his other more romantic, more adventurous, more spy-driven films. But then for Psycho, I am resonating with what you're saying in that it is more of like a grim fairy tale. Oh, totally. Yeah. The the grim fairy tales were very moral-driven. Yeah. Yeah. And so that I I think that's it. I think it's yeah, you're absolutely right in what you're saying about taking the color or the romance away from the story so that you are just left with the characters and their choices. And mm-hmm. Marion was very much trying to shirk the identity that had been forced upon her as mm-hmm. a, a secretary for a real estate company in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, <laughs> she she was trying to break free of that. And it, through the film's morality, she was ultimately punished, even though she had regrets and yes. was almost ready to face the music when she was removed from the film. Valerie, what do you think? <clears throat> Actually, when you first asked that, Sarah, I thought about Roger Ebert. 
I don't know if you guys remember Siskel and Ebert, those movie critics. Of course. <laughs> I watch I watch them all the time. I did. I used to also. And I one thing that has just stayed with me and nothing else was when they asked Roger Ebert, what was his choice? If you could watch movies in color or black and white for the rest of his life. Hmm. And he chose black and white. Hmm. And his answer was because I can see in color. And it stayed with me that, wow, you can see color, but for entertainment, he chose black and white. To me, that meant something significant that, okay, you're only focusing on dialogue or, or what? What does that mean? But I, it's kind of almost haunted me why someone would choose black and white when I love seeing color. But it's true. We do see in color. Not to get off the topic of Hitchcock, but in the world-famous film, The Wizard of Oz, before Dorothy goes to right. Oz, her life in Kansas is in black and white. So I, I think that's also very telling. It, it's so stark. There's something harsh about it. When you see it, it, it's just. And I think when it becomes color, I know you relax a bit. My demeanor changes. But black and white, I'm just super focused because I feel like I'm not seeing the whole picture. <laughs> I think that would be so fascinating if there was a way, Eileen, that you guys could just show I know <laughs> the stage in black and white only. <laughs> I know. I've thought about that when we were doing noir. I was like, oh, I wish we could just wear just black and white black outfits. And white, right? Yeah. And we could just, if we're wearing any makeup, it's it's just shades of gray. Surely. Why um, I think that's really, I would love to do that, actually. I was thinking as I would, as you were speaking about this quote from Roger Ebert. It strikes me as being similar to reading a book where you're reading a book, literally black and white, you know, typically text on a page, right? And your mind is filling in all the other details. And there's something about that experience that I think rather than having everything served to you on a plate, here's everything in color. You're, you're allowed or forced to fill in the gaps with your own imagination and like when you have a scene in a movie where something's happening, you can't see it, but you can hear it yes. and you, your mind fills in everything and you think that you've just seen something horrible, but you didn't actually see it. <laughs> but <laughs> I think your comment about making you focus, hyper-focus versus being hyper-realistic really resonates with me because color can be, especially when it's like exaggerated, you know, and there's filters that make it even more vibrant, it does conjure up a different sense, like your visual senses are stimulated differently, right? Mm -hmm. And black and white, your intellectual, mental senses are stimulated. So Eileen, I have two more questions for you. Sure. What do you find creepy or suspenseful that you think maybe other people do not? <laughs> it, it, <laughs> do you mean like in, in general or... <laughs> That's interesting. Creepy or suspenseful that other people do not. I assume that what I find creepy and suspenseful is everything that everything that everybody else feels. But I guess it's it doesn't. It's not necessarily the case. I can give you a for example that rolls into my next question. Sure. The last time that you and I spoke, you were preparing to take a puppeteering class. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I may find puppets a little creepy. <laughs> but I your excitement about 
this class, this puppeteering class that you were going to take, and this is, I know, a long time ago, it was contagious. So I would like to hear, did, did you take the class? Was, was it fun? What did you learn about it? And also, why aren't puppets creepy to you? <laughs> well, okay. So first, when you gave that example, that opened me up to thinking a little bit. And I thought of something that was kind of interesting. So I hate eggs. And... um <laughs> And so, like, if I'm seeing somebody or if there's mayonnaise around, it's also very disturbing. So if I'm somewhere and somebody's got a knife and there's some mayonnaise on it and it's hovering near something that I might like, that's very creepy to me. Like, oh, God, please. No, don't let the mayonnaise touch my thing. I hope that the person that's making my my veggie burger doesn't touch my burger with their knife. So that's a creepy, suspenseful thing. And it's funny because I, I read somewhere that Alfred Hitchcock hated eggs. And there are scenes where he focuses in on characters that are unlikable or distasteful and they're eating eggs or there's eggs in the picture. <laughs> I resonated with that. But as far as the puppet stuff, so I don't, I love puppets as a creative. I think I'm more interested in the technical construction aspect of making puppets. I see them as artistic, beautiful things that can be expressive. They're beautiful and wonderful because they, like improvisation, allow you to be free from the structure of a human. You can take on another character and manipulate their body and make them do things in a way that maybe you wouldn't feel comfortable. <laughs> like, oh, I don't feel like I'm a good dancer, but I can make this puppet dance and I'm comfortable with that. So to me, it's a form of expression and an object of creative beauty. So I don't find them creepy at all. And maybe it's the type of puppet. So there's marionettes and then there's like hand puppets and there's there's different types of puppets, obviously, which is another whole topic of discussion. So it depends probably on what kind of puppet you're looking at. Because <laughs> I can imagine there being a very creepy looking puppet that could scare somebody, especially a child. The program that I applied to and got into is at the University of Connecticut. And at the time, I could do it long distance because it, of COVID. And then I, at that time, took on a new job that became time intensive and demanding. So I didn't actually finish pursuing that. So I still have that on my to-do list is pursuing the certificate in puppetry. So I haven't completed that. And I wish that I could just quit my job and move to Connecticut. <laughs> Or move to England or Prague and study puppetry. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. A couple things. I will now never look at mayonnaise the same way again. <laughs> <laughs> so Good, thank because it's dangerous. I, I'm glad to hear that. Glad that how, I could how, help somebody. How did I never see it until now? I, I, so, so thank you for that. And the creepiest puppet that I can imagine right now <laughs> is one that would look like Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, ooh. <laughs> well, that would be great. Ooh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's, Val I'm visualizing that right now. I'm loving it. Valerie, do you have any other questions for Eileen? Last question for both of you. Being October now, just one word answer. So if you could pick a mask, what would it be? Oh, like for a Halloween costume? Just a mask. 
Mm. Okay. Wrinkly. So <laughs> <laughs> good, Sarah. Fox. Nice. And mine is egg. Oh, <laughs> oh no, that's so scary. Oh my god. Oh. So that would mean you would have egg on your face. <laughs> uh, that was a mom joke. That's funny. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Eileen, it is always wonderful to be in your presence. Thank you so much for this conversation. Valerie, thank you for setting up this interview. And oh my gosh. I just when I think I can't wait, there's another layer of can't waitedness layered on top of that. <laughs> well, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Valerie. This was fun. I'm gonna go make sure there's no eggs in my house now. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't know, Eileen, I think I might have this like latent thing that you also have about the mayonnaise, because there's no mayonnaise in my house. And, oh, and interesting. And I will not go out and buy it. Well, good for you, Sarah. I support you in that. Yeah. So just because people think that mayonnaise is a condiment that we need to have around all the time, I don't believe that you need to embrace that. So mayonnaise free. Yeah. I like, support you. Why mayonnaise in the first place? Like, I know. You've opened this all up. I'm, I'm, oh, my God. Like yeah. Valerie's like, I'm going to go make myself a sandwich. I'm, and it's going to be an egg salad right now. What does that Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. The worst of the worst. It's like eggs and mayonnaise. Oh, no. Like, why take olive oil and mess it up with eggs and make it into mayonnaise? That is so wrong. Can you imagine what a picture of an egg salad sandwich would look like in, in black and white? Oh, God. Now that would be a good mask right there. There you go. Bye, here, you guys. Have a great Sunday. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 And that's our show. If you think improv sounds like fun, it is. If you think you'd like to try improv, it's easy. Just go to SynergyTheater.com and click on School of Improv. Synergy Theater offers beginner, advanced, and master classes. Synergy Theater is also on Facebook. Please rate, review, and follow this podcast. Your support makes a difference. Synergy Theater is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit that depends on the participation of current and future star supporters and improvisers like you. Thank you.